As indicated in your bulletin, we are continuing in our series through the book of the Acts. This is number nine, and we're still in the first, uh, we're, we're still in chapter two, and the third sermon on this particular passage, 242 and following. So mark the page, mark the passage. This is the church we want to become in ever-increasing measure. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which renews our lives into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit now upon us individually and as your corporate body. We pray that you will enlighten the eyes of our hearts and give us spiritual wisdom and insight. We pray that you will open our ears spiritually so that we may hear your voice speaking to our hearts in Scripture. We ask this so that we might honor and glorify you as your people in Jesus Christ to the glory of your name. Amen. Acts 2, 42 through 47, this is the word of God, it is written. And they, the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. To him who loves us, who has redeemed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to think with me about the Apostles' Creed, beginning with that phrase... He ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. Only recently did I realize for the very first time that that section of the Apostles' Creed is an exact summary of what we have been reading and hearing from Acts chapters 1 and 2 for the last eight weeks. That's what it is. The book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus. Then the Lord Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit upon his believers on the day of Pentecost. On that day of Pentecost, people from all over the known world heard 
and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and were incorporated by baptism into the one worldwide church of Jesus Christ, which is the Holy Catholic Church. And now, in Acts 2, 42 and following, we see a picture of the spiritual unity of the church, the community of believers in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's a picture and a description of the communion of saints. There it is. I've never seen it before. Now, in the creed, the phrase communion of saints refers not to some kind of mystical communication between Christians on earth and saints in heaven. It refers to the fellowship of the Christian community. And therefore, what we read in Acts 2, 42 through 47 is at the very heart and core, it is indeed the necessary foundation of true biblical Christianity and therefore of authentic Christian living. Pastor Jonathan and I are spending four weeks on this brief passage because we are personally committed to the vision which this passage sets out before us. That is, for us, Covenant Presbyterian Church, to grow spiritually more and more as a real, authentic, genuine church of Jesus Christ in which we all are devoted, devoted, as Pastor Jonathan said two weeks ago, obstinately committed to the apostles' teaching, that is, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. We want us all to be on the same page as we move forward. This page, this page, get on this page. That's who we want to be. And now is a good time to emphasize these distinguishing characteristics of the authentic Christian church as we move forward out of this pandemic under the banner of King Jesus. Now, in the previous sermons, Pastor Jonathan has covered the apostles' teaching, Scripture, and the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper. Today we turn to Acts 2.42 and following to consider fellowship and the prayers. First, fellowship. Those of you who know me well know that I love church family night, fellowship, suppers. I was raised on them. They are deeply encoded in the spiritual DNA of this congregation. And I can't wait to get back to them. Make a note, there's one that's going to be coming not too long from now, the Lord willing. They are important to our congregational life. But let's be aware of the word, that the word fellowship in Acts 
2.42 and elsewhere throughout the New Testament has also to do with much, much more than having a wonderful, heart-warming time sharing a meal together. It does have to do with sharing heartwarming meals together. Yes, it does, and those are important, but my point is the word fellowship also has to do with much, much, much more than that. As Pastor Jonathan pointed out last Sunday, the New Testament word, koinonia, translated fellowship here in Acts 2.42, is the same word that is used with reference to our communion, our fellowship with Jesus Christ when we rightly partake of the Lord's Supper. It is also the same word used in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 in the benediction written by the Apostle Paul, which you often hear at the conclusion of a worship service. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion, the fellowship, of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It is also the same word which the Apostle John used when he wrote at the beginning of his first letter, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These verses teach us that true Christian fellowship is grounded in and flows out of the reality of our mutual fellowship with our communion with the triune God. It is a deeply spiritual reality, not a superficial social experience. The Greek word koinonia is also the underlying word or the concept in the Apostles' Creed when we affirm, I believe in the communion of saints, which basically means the fellowship of fellow believers in Christ or the common union of the church of Jesus Christ. The word koinonia, often translated fellowship, literally means common, that is, something which is held or shared or experienced in common. It denotes mutual participation in something. Someone has humorously defined fellowship as meaning we're all in the same boat. That's actually a pretty good definition. If we think of ourselves by God's grace as being in the ark, of Christ's church saved from the floodwaters of God's wrath. But basically, to be devoted to the fellowship means that we're all in. We are all in this. We are all in this together. We are all in this life of faith together with and for one another with a common unity and a mutual identity in Christ which bears very real fruit in practical ways. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's the same Greek root word here, koina, in common. 
This does not mean that the Jerusalem church lived as a commune. They did not. This does not mean that the, um, that the apostles imposed a mandatory socialism or communism upon the members of the Jerusalem church. They did not. What it does mean is that the believers were so devoted to the fellowship that they were voluntarily, spontaneously generous and gracious toward one another and especially attentive to their fellow believers who had particular needs. There wasn't a a stratification in the church of the haves and the have-nots. Now, this is a basic principle of Christian financial stewardship. God has given you what He has given you, whatever that is, so that you might meet the real needs of your family, yourself, and your fellow believers in Christ. And beyond the Christian church, the real needs of your neighbor. This is what we read in verse 45. They were selling, voluntarily selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, what is described here is really not all that different from financial stewardship in the life of covenant. Your giving is voluntary. Your voluntary giving meets the common needs of the church corporately, our life together as a family, and in some instances, it also meets the financial needs of fellow members when they find themselves in extraordinarily difficult financial circumstances. Your giving also supports the mission of the church beyond our congregational life through Christian mission agencies and our missionaries locally and around the world. And this partnership in mission, this fellowship in mission is also a basic meaning of the biblical word fellowship. For example, when the Apostle Paul wrote his thank you letter to the church in Philippi, To thank them for their financial support of his ministry, he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership, that is, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And when he said that, he was referring to their financial mission support. So, when you Put your voluntary financial gift in the offering plate. You see, it's the way, it's one way at least, that you put yourself in the offering plate. And when we look at it like that, we can say, we're all in this together. That's biblical fellowship, the communion of saints. But there's more. The fellowship or communion of saints has also to do with the sharing of our personal and practical talents and abilities for the building up of the body and the ongoing ministry of the church. Now, this takes a commitment of time and energy and 
personal priority and self-sacrificial service for the common spiritual benefit of the whole church. So think about all that our congregational life involves. Everything from serving in the nursery to the ushering team, the chancel committee, the audio-visual team, Sunday school teachers, building and grounds maintenance, and more and more and more. All of that is tangible, practical expression of being devoted to the fellowship. And I'm not making this up. This is biblical fellowship. Committing ourselves to live together, to work together as the church of Jesus Christ, the visible expression of the kingdom of God upon the earth. And it goes beyond that. Being devoted to the fellowship means being devoted to, being obstinately committed to. Being obstinately committed to one another in brotherly love. Romans 12, 10. Being devoted to the fellowship means rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Being devoted to the fellowship means loving one another not only in word but also in deed. Now, our congregational care team of deacons carries out this ministry in a wonderful, wonderful way. But all of you, and I know this to be true, all of you personally and, and spontaneously do participate in this fellowship of loving one another in various tangible ways, for example, by participating in the meal train ministry, writing cards and making phone calls to our homebound or those with chronic illness, by celebrating the birth of children in our congregation and participating in those baby showers and by staying in regular close contact with the fellow members of your neighborhood flock. This is all about being devoted to the fellowship and you're doing those things and your devotion to the fellowship in these practical ways strengthens our congregation. This is what we do because this is who we are. Being devoted to the fellowship also means protecting and promoting the unity of the church. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a commitment, an obstinate commitment to the fellowship. Think about what the Apostle Paul wrote with regard to those two women in the Philippian church. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And yes, I ask you also 
true yoke fellow in the church, help these women. There was some kind of conflict between them, a breach in the fellowship. But being devoted to the fellowship means seeking reconciliation with fellow members and helping members to be reconciled to one another. It also means mutually encouraging one another, holding one another accountable in a spirit of love, helping one another practically, praying for one another, and bearing one another's burdens just like a family because we are a family, the real family of the household of God by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through the communion of the Holy Spirit. Being devoted to the fellowship simply means being all in. All in with and for one another, sharing all of life together because of our common unity in Christ. And therefore, being devoted to the fellowship also means being willing to share in the sufferings of Christ in this world and to support one another in, quote, the fellowship, the fellowship of his sufferings. Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his sufferings. In the New Testament, the word fellowship occurs numerous times in the context of suffering persecution. So being devoted to the fellowship means we're all in this together when we experience persecution of any kind for Jesus' sake. More and more in our American society, it may be social ostracism. It may be political repression. It may be economic marginalization. It may be personal criticism or public humiliation because of our devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord. But if we are authentic Christians... We will be devoted to the fellowship even and especially when it is the fellowship of Christ's sufferings in persecution. We're all in this together. Acts 2.42 also tells us that believers were devoted to the prayers the English Standard Version, which we use, does give us the most accurate translation of the Greek, the prayers. In other words, the Greek text does not say devoted to prayer, but rather to the prayers. Now, this seems to indicate formal observances of set prayers as a community or structured times of prayer as a community, perhaps as, an, in, perhaps as individuals as well, in private, which of course are also to be offered regularly 
But at, at this point in the first century, the Christians, you see, Jewish believers in Jesus, continued to go to the temple in Jerusalem for the set times of Jewish prayer. The very next passage, Acts 3.1, tells us that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. Prayer at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, is also mentioned later on in Acts chapter 10. Now, the idea of having set times of formal prayer throughout the day may be unfamiliar to most of us. But we do read in the book of Daniel that Daniel, quote, got down on his knees three times a day as his discipline of prayer, implying a set schedule of prayer. Some Christians near the end of the first century adopted the practice of praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. There's a historical record of that. The medieval monastic movement developed a schedule of prayer throughout the day and night. And John Calvin himself wrote that we should set apart certain specific times for prayer, namely when we arise in the morning, before we begin daily work, including school, when we sit down to a meal, and after we have eaten the meal, and before retiring to bed. Now, this is that kind of structured daily discipline, though not to be legalistically imposed, frames and infuses the entire day with an ongoing sense of God's presence with us and our continual dependence upon Him. It just reminds us that we live before the face of God every moment of our life. The point here is simply to say that throughout church history, going back to Acts chapter 2 and further into the Old Testament, God's people have found it helpful to have a discipline of set times of prayer. So in addition to our discipline of daily prayer, what about? What about our corporate evening prayer services? How about that? Are you obstinately committed to the prayers of our corporate evening prayer services? Maybe we ought to schedule them more often than quarterly. And also, a word of encouragement, not all of our prayers have to be our own personal, spontaneous, extemporaneous prayers. You may use written prayers and pray them as your own sincerely. I find it very, very helpful personally to make use of other resources. First of all, the book of Psalms, which was certainly an integral part of the prayers of the first century church. The Lord's Prayer, not rattled off in a hurry, but prayed very slowly, phrase by phrase, meditatively, reflectively, will deepen your experience of prayer. 
The prayers of the Apostle Paul in his letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians are Holy Spirit-inspired prayers for our use. And then in the history of English-speaking Christianity, there are the rich resources of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and also the prayers of the Puritans, which are available now in, in various books, which Pastor Jonathan and I would be more than happy to show you. Now, if I seem to be far away from the text of Acts 2.42 here, my point is simply this. True believers are to be devoted, obstinately committed to the prayers, which I think means more than just perfunctory prayers off the top of our heads in a hurry or in fits and starts and hits and misses. Real prayer is more than just thinking about someone or worrying about a situation or wishful thinking about a future outcome. That's not prayer. Being devoted to the prayers, whether in private personal prayer or in public corporate worship, must mean, in the words of Calvin, that, quote, all the devotion of the heart should be completely engaged. We must give ourselves to prayer because in giving ourselves to prayer, we are giving ourselves to God, and that is very serious business. And oh, by the way, just keep reading through the book of Acts and read through the letters of the New Testament, and you will see references to prayer over and over and over and over and over again. You will see, therefore, how important prayer was to the early church, and that, by the way, was based on the example of Jesus himself. What would your life look like if you were obstinately committed to the prayers. Now let's wrap it up. The believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Where do you find an authentic Christian church? You find the authentic Christian church where Acts 2, 42 through 47 is lived out in real life. That's the church we want to be every day. How do you live a spiritually strong, as a spiritually strong community of Christians in the 21st century when you're being faced with increasing anti-Christian forces, powerful, wealthy, influential anti-Christian forces in the surrounding culture, politically, and socially. You do it the same way they did it in the first century. You live as an Acts 2.42 community of believers every day. How do you raise your children in a world gone crazy? A culture of absolute moral insanity and spiritual darkness, and organized evil. You raise them in an Acts 2.42 community of believers every 
day. How do you bear witness to the world? How do you publicly testify? How do you say out loud and show with your life in the midst of all this ungodliness, chaos, and satanic confusion that you believe in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling over the world and coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. How do you say with your life that you believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, in a way that really matters and makes a difference? You do that by being devoted, obstinately committed to the apostles' teaching in Scripture, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers every day. That's how you put your stake in the ground and fly your flag for King Jesus. This is how we say Jesus is Lord. This is how we live it out before a watching world. Because, brothers and sisters, do you see that to be devoted to these Acts 2.42 distinguishing marks of the church is to be devoted, obstinately committed to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We do these things because this is who we are. Because of Him. And He is our life. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Father, we are thankful for Your great love for us. For Your saving, redeeming, keeping love of us. We are thankful that you have sent into the world a great Savior whose kingdom is forever. Help us, we pray, in word and in deed, to live as those who will live forever to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. In response to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world. As we say together, the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in John the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered and his child, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. For thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.